I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15 and actually my thoughts are very loosely gathered together because I was praying and asking God, God, what is it that you would want me to share with this congregation here? And I really was struggling with, you know, what do I share? But at the end of it, I said, Jason, just share what, you know, I lay on your heart. And I was not even to bring these papers, and I was just going to open the scriptures and preach (laughs) and do a extempore free-flowing sermon. And I'm going to do that, but these are going to be just something which will keep me on track and keep the time in focus. I'll be looking at different passages. One of the passages that I'm going to look at is a very familiar passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we saw. And Paul starts off that uh, passage by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what I want to share with you today is nothing new. It's nothing fanciful. It is, and if I share something new, be careful. Seriously. Because I have nothing new to share. Because if you have read your Bible, it's all there. So it is a reminder, and like Peter says in his episode, that it is good that you be reminded of some things. So Paul also is saying that it is good to remind you of something. You have some issues and some problems, but I'm going to remind you of something. And he reminds the church in Corinth of the gospel that he preached. And which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That is, if you stand fast in the gospel that you have received, which he's going to expound and explain very soon, if you stand firm in it, you can be assured of a reward, of the reward of knowing God and being with him when he comes. And this is the first thing that he talks. Verses 1 to 15 talks about the common ground of all Christian faith, life, and preaching. And he is establishing the fact that it is based on the resurrection of Christ. So he starts off verse 3 by saying, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now this is the Christian confession. Anywhere in the, you know, you go anywhere in the world, this is one confession on which Christianity stands or falls. You take away this confession, it can be a set of good teaching. It can be something, you know, nice to hear. It could be good morals, but it has no life. This is the confession any Christian has, any true born-again Christian has. What is that? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is the fact? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, He was buried, he was raised on the third day, again in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to several people, starting with Peter. He goes on to talk about the 500, he talks about the others, he talks about himself, and he says, he appeared to me even as one abnormally born. 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. That he was raised upon the third day according to the scriptures. This is the central truth of the Bible. It is a Christian's confession. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and that he was raised upon the third day according to the scriptures. Christianity stands or falls on this truth. And Paul gives substantial evidence to the fact that Jesus indeed is risen in verses 5 on. It is enough to pass the test of evidence in any court. Even when Paul wrote this letter, he is telling there are enough people around willing to testify with their lives the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he reminds his writer, his audience, this is what you believed, verse 11. This is what you believed. And then he goes on to verse 12. And he is tackling a problem that is there in the Corinthian church. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, he goes on to give you a set of things that applies. We saw some of it here in that presentation. One is Christ is still in the grave. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is futile. We are misrepresenting God by stating he raised Jesus from the grave. We are still in our sins and those who are dead are eternally lost. That is his argument from verses 12 to 19. Christian faith, life and witness are all empty and of no consequences. Moreover, we are found to be liars telling Christ is indeed risen. Verse 15. And we are living a lie. Then we are still in our sins. That is verse 17. We are hopelessly messed up and trapped in our own selves with no hope of rescue. Those gone, gone ahead are lost forever, verse 18. And there, that, all that is there to life and living is here and now. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may have diabetics. You didn't hear the last line, right? For tomorrow, not that you may die, you may have diabetes. Okay? We are to be more pitied than any other for our willingness to suffer and die for a cause which really makes no difference to us or to others. Verse 19, Christians are a pitiable bunch. That is what he goes on to say till verse 19. But verse 20, this is what he says. You can believe what you want. You can say what you want. The reality is something, the truth is something. And the consequence of it, you cannot escape. And what is the truth? The truth is this. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. You like it or not, you believe it or not, that is a reality, that is the truth, and there are going to be consequences for that. You know, one of the things that I'm increasingly sensing and I'm feeling and seeing in our westernized Christian Christianity you know, I have nothing against anything, but for example, the clip that we saw. 
it stops short. It talks about all the benefits that we have. Many of our songs, which we sing, I call it the 7-Eleven songs of the wall, is, which makes us feel good. It, about, it talks about us. It talks about how you know, God has been good to us. How you know, It's a feel-nice songs, a lot of them. It's all about us. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ has far greater consequences than just what we saw. All of that is true, but there is something much, much more. Something more than all of what we saw. Because if that something more is not there, then you have to question if you have the, the things in your life which you just saw off the screen in that that is what I want to focus today. But before that, his resurrection we see in verses 20 and 22 guarantees the resurrection of all who are in Christ. It also guarantees the final destruction of death itself. Verse 23 to 28, death itself will die. This is the fact, this is the truth. One cannot deny it, nor can one escape the reality and consequences of this truth. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has implications. What does Good Friday tell us? You know what Good Friday tells us? It tells us in no uncertain terms that God will judge sin. God will not overlook sin. God has already passed his judgment on sin. John 3 and verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And in the resurrection of Christ, the condemnation is assured. The only option or choice left to us to pass from condemnation to life is to accept Christ's death as being on our behalf. There is no room for a second or third option. As a resurrected Lord, he has power over the grave and the dead. He will call the living and the dead to judgment. Actually, Christianity is all about the person of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and what he continues to do today as a risen Lord. It is not about moral living or about how to work our way through this mess. It is about what you and I choose to do with Jesus Christ. It is about what you and I choose to do with Jesus Christ. But I want to take you a little further and ask this question. How does it impact us, the resurrection of Christ? Those who claim to know Jesus Christ. And I want to bring to you a person from the scriptures, one of my favorite characters, Apostle Paul. And I want to read from one of my favorite passages again from the book of Philippians and chapter 3. This is what happens when we acknowledge the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is what happens when we encounter the living God. 
and I want you to listen to this carefully. I don't want to read a lot of things which we know. Verse 4 of chapter 3 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he talks about his lineage and background and heritage. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, or Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So what we see here is Paul's life, when he encounters the risen Lord, there is a radical change. Now, verse 7, I want to focus on verse 7. What does he say in verse 7? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I do not know how you understand it. But actually what Paul is saying is, he is revaluing all of the things that he has. Things held as valuable is now seen not just as loss, but as positively harmful. Now I want you to listen to this very carefully. The things that he has, the achievements that he has, the heritage that he has, the faith that he has inherited, he is not talking about them as just loss. I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. But he is saying, these are positively harmful in my pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ. These are good things. Your job, your family, your careers, your education, all of these are good things. These are gifts from God. Be thankful about it. Your health, everything is a good thing. But Paul here is saying that I count all of them as lost, positively harmful in my pursuit of this single focused pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ. That is what happens when you meet the living Christ. That is what happens when you believe the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. If that has not happened, you still have to encounter him. You still have to encounter him. You still have to encounter him. I count, verse 8, it's a lasting attitude. Versus a passing impulse. It's a deep-seated resolution and continues to feel the same. These are good things. There are going to be many good things that God is going to bring into your lives. And thank God for it. But let not those good things come in the way of pursuing God. You know, our church is blessed People are buying homes. People are selling homes. It's all very nice and dandy. But trust me, if that is going to come in the way of your pursuit of God, you know, because God loves us so much, he will shake us up once again. You know why? So that the things that will fall off when he shakes can fall off, so that the things which cannot be shaken will stand. Just when Abraham thought he was all settled in Beersheba, God comes to him and unsettles him and says, your son, your only son, the son whom you love, I want him. 
Hold on to the good things lightly. Don't hold on to it too tightly. Don't let the things that you have been given so graciously by God to come in the way of doing what God wants you to do. If that happens, you have a God who loves you so much that sometimes it will feel like he's tearing those things away from you so that he can have a little more of you. It is not because he loves you less, but it will be because he loves you so much. The object of Paul's pursuit is Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's an intensely personal expression. For Christ's sake, Paul suffered loss of all things. Esteem, friendship, enjoyment and rest, relationships, Roman citizenship, his mother's religion, father's inheritance, his own personal attainment, everything. He uses a vulgar term, dung, to express the totality of Paul's renunciation of all things that came in the way of his knowing Jesus Christ. Paul Jovet, he writes like this, many Christians are satisfied with expenditure in which there is no shedding of blood. They give away what they can easily spare. Their gifts are detached things and the surrender of them necessitates no bleeding. They engage, they engage in sacrifice as long as it does not involve life. When the really vital is demanded, they are not to be found. They are prominent in all triumphant entries and they willingly spend a little money on colorful decorations, on banners and palm branches. But when the hoorays and hosannas change into ominous murmurs and threats and Calvary comes into sight, they steal away into safe seclusion. In scripture, there is no room for painless commitment no resurrection without crucifixion. No cross. And there is, if there is no cross, there is no empty tomb. In scriptures, there is no room for painless commitment. No resurrection without crucifixion. No cross. No empty tomb. And in verse 11 of chapter 3, this is what Paul has to say. And I'll read it to you. This is one of my most favorite verses, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What he's saying is, I will know this Jesus and I will live each moment of my life in the power of that resurrected power, that, that, that power which rose Jesus from the dead. I want to know that. I want to somehow experience that in my day-to-day -day life so that I can rise above myself. I can defeat my own desires and longings and affection. That I can raise in that, I can raise myself in that power and live for this God. That I may come to know him. That I may come to enjoy him. That he will become the focus and the all in all of my life. That is what he's saying. That I may, that is what he is saying, that I may know him, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering because I cannot know these things unless I am willing to partake in his suffering, unless I am willing to be part of his, of his grieving heart, of the, of the burden that he shares, of the longing that he has for his people for whom he died. 
that I may know him, the power of his res resurrection, and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And look at this statement. In verse 11, it says, it says like this, that by any means possible, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want you to be very careful here. He is not having any, you know, he is not distrusting his God that he will rise again from the dead because Christ is risen. You know what Paul is saying? He is saying, I cannot trust myself. He is saying, I don't trust myself. I can have the confidence. I can trust my God that one of these days I will rise again because of him. But I cannot trust myself. That is what he's saying. It is not a statement of distress in the God who has called him, who is faithful, but it is a statement of his own distress about his own self. You can see his struggle in Romans chapter 7. If you and I are not going through that struggle each moment of our life, we need to ask, what's wrong with us? If Christ indeed is risen... How has he impacted us? Have we encountered the risen Savior? Or are we just satisfied knowing that our sins are forgiven and our, you know, our passport to heaven is all ready and we have a ticket to heaven? Is that all what Christ's resurrection means to you this morning? If that is so, you have missed out on what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. You know, but what the tragedy is in many Christians, verse 33, many Christians live like the Epicurean fly, you know, the fly. The Epicureans were a group of people who said, uh, let's live, uh, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen. So there's a parable, there is a story about the Epicurean fly. He's, uh, the fly is dying in the honey pot. The fly is, you know, got himself stuck in the honey pot and it's dying. And even as it's dying, this is what the, uh, the, the fly had to say. I've eaten, drunk, and bathed. I've eaten, drunk, and bathed. And I care nothing if I die. Isn't that somehow, you know, we may not say it, but is that how we live our life? I've eaten, drunk, and bathed myself with all the good things that God has given. Now if I die, it's okay. Or, eat, drink, and enjoy thyself. The rest is nothing. Is that how we live our life? We may not say, yes, that's how I live our life. But is that how we unconsciously and unknowingly live our lives? That is for you to ask. But you know, Paul, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians and verse 33 on, you know what he says? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. It's in the present tense. Which means, do not live in your delusions. Do not live lying to yourself. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
evil company doth corrupt good manners. It corrupts morals. It corrupts character. Ultimately, the, if we choose to live like Christ is not risen and it is not reflected in our life, the problem is a moral problem. Because if Christ is not risen, then I can live the way I want. I can use my resources the way I want. I can use my education the way I want. I can use my bank balance the way I want. I can close my heart to the hundreds of dying people, hundreds of thousands of dying people out there and be comfortable in my pews here. Friends, if Christ indeed is risen, it has implications. It has implications. It has implications more than just being forgiven. It has implications for you to get up from your pews and start walking and doing the things that God is calling you to do. Did not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Evil company doth corrupt good manners or morals or character. The basic problem of humans is a moral problem. And that's why the, 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 the literal translation, if I'm not mistaken, would say, awake righteously. Wake up or sober up as you should and stop sinning. When you don't feel in your heart the burden that God has for his people. When you don't love God's people. When you don't do the things that God is asking you to do. You are sinning. You are not doing. When you don't do the things that God is calling you to do. You are sinning. They should arouse themselves from the evil condition into which they have fallen. Erroneous doctrine leading to wrong conduct. Leading to incorrect knowledge of God. When we decide to believe in the resurrection of Christ, we are taking a stand for truth against lies, for good against evil, for love instead of hate, and above all, for life rather than death. When we decide to believe in the resurrection of Christ, we are taking a stand for truth against lies, for good against evil, for love instead of hate, and above all, for life rather than life, rather than death. But there is something more. There is something more. And I want to go back, you know, verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, that could be a conclusion to the whole book, but especially it's a conclusion to chapter 15. If Christ be risen, if Christ indeed is risen, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, children, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, Hebrew writer says it's impossible to please God without faith. You know what faith means? The, 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 and it goes on to say that what is faith? It, means it talks about what is faith and it goes on to say that whoever comes to, comes to God must believe that he exists. And then what? And he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And what is the reward? The reward of knowing himself. The reward of knowing God. That is the reward of a Christian. That is what happens when you encounter the living Savior. You 
you come to him knowing that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him diligently. The reward of knowing Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is talking. He is saying, I want to know him. I want to know him. I want to know the resurrection power. I want to share in his suffering. I want to share in, I want to walk with him. So that somehow, somehow, somehow at the end of the day, I will rise again with him. I want you to turn to one more passage before I close. Second Corinthians chapter 4. It says, I'll read from verse 7. And it's a reminder to me as it is to you as Christians who have encountered this risen Lord. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. That is the gospel, the good news. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in your bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Someone has to die so that the other can live. That principle lives on. It has lived on for 2,000 years. I have to die so that others can live. I have to die so that others can live. Amazing principle. Go home and study a little bit more. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written... I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Listen to this. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. At the end of the day, when we live the way Christ wants, we have the joy of entering his presence. Not just me, but all of us together. What a community willing to die for the other so that the other may live. That is what happens when you encounter the risen Lord. Because he died so that I may live. So that I am going to die so that others may live. And in so doing, the day will come when all of God's people gather together. We can all come to his presence and in some way reflect what our Savior has done for us. He died so that you and I could live. And so we die so that the other, our brothers, our sisters, our children can live. And then it goes on to say, For it is for all your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. We do not, I do not lose heart. I do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Today we call, oh, Christians should take care of themselves. You didn't burn out. Paul is burning out. He is burning out. You read through his letter. He was crazy burning out. 
It says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. See, that is the paradox of Christian life. When you draw on the resources of God, that is what happens. Your outer self is wasting away. You're getting dimmer in your sight. Your health is fading, but your inner man is being renewed. It's becoming stronger and stronger. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. You have a choice to make. Are you going to live looking at the things which you can see or the things you cannot see? Jesus became man. God became man. He died, was buried, he rose again. You and I have a choice how we are going to live. I have I've always liked this story and I have shared it previously. If you don't remember, it's fine. But if you remember, just bear with me. Luciano Pavarotti, right, the famous tenor. When he was a boy, his father, a baker, introduced him to the wonders of song. And he urged him to work very hard to develop his voice. But at the same time, he also joined the teacher's college to become a teacher. So on graduating from the teacher's college, he asked his father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? Both are good things, right? Shall I be a teacher or a singer? Luciano, his father replied, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. For life, you must choose one chair. And he goes on to say, Luciano Pavarotti, he goes on to say, I chose one. It took seven years of study and frustration before I made my first professional appearance. It took another seven years to reach the Metropolitan Opera. And now I think, whether it is laying bricks, writing a book, whatever you choose, we should give ourselves to it. Commitment. That's the key. Choose one chair. If you have encountered the risen Lord, it's time you decided where your commitment lies. Father God, we want to thank you for this time and thank you for your blessing upon our lives. That you should give us yet another opportunity to hear your word. It's not the privilege of so many who long to hear your word, Lord, but you have given it to us so graciously. I want to thank you for enabling me to share your word and for these dear people to hear it. Lord, I want to believe that you have spoken to me and to us. I want to thank you because you're such a patient and loving God that you're still working in us and we can have the confidence that he who has begun a good work in us will see it to completion. We are so grateful to you for that, Lord. Lord, will you bless this community of faith here? Will you bless the leadership, the deacons, the people who are involved in the various activities of this community? Lord, which makes this community what it is. Lord, I pray in the days to come that you will grant them the joy of seeing many, many, many people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through the efforts that you have enabled them to undertake that you will be their God and they will enjoy you, that they will see many who have come in go out into the mission fields, 
that it will be their joy to send them out. That it will be their joy to receive them back for a season again, if you so will. And if not, Lord, to see them when you come. Lord, will you keep them safe and will you be their God? Will you continue to bless them and prosper them in all that they do, in their work, in their health, in their homes, with regard to their children, with regard to their careers? But Lord, at the same time, will you give them a heart which will seek to love you more and more, a heart which will faithfully serve you, and a mind which will diligently seek to know you better each day. And Lord, will you bless them and will you keep them? Will you make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them? And may you, Lord, lift your countenance upon them and give them peace. I ask and offer all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you once again for this time. <laughs>